0: Welcome to the Storymakers interview series, where we rave over our favorite narratives and shine some light on the dedicated creatives who bring them to life. This series and our other platforms and channels are part of a larger mission to create an intuitive web space for storytellers' small backgrounds. Our web app will help storytellers publish custom manga, webtoons, comics, and other stories. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website, storystorm.co. I'm Jeremy Moore, CEO of StoryStorm.co, and I'm here with writer, lecturer, and general humorist, Ari Kaplan. Hi, Ari. Hey, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for asking, man. I'm uh, really excited about this interview. You have some things in your resume that are very interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's been, I, I find that like no matter what I'm talking about, my work is a Television comedy writer, my work as a comic book writer and graphic novelist, my work as a, vid- a screenwriter for video games and transmedia. I I often have like a more colorful resume than a lot of other writers out there, just because it's gone in such bizarre directions. But I think that's a good thing, and it's certainly a good conversation starter, and icebreaker. So yeah, colorful is the word, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'd like to just go ahead and dive right in if that's okay with you yeah of course of course absolutely okay all right could you take us back to the beginning where are you
1: from i am from baltimore maryland not not too far from uh from virginia from where you're from and um i when i was a kid i always wanted to draw cartoons for a living to draw and write comic books um And then later on, that kind of turned into wanting to also write screenplays, scripts for TV shows, screenplays for movies, things like that. Um, And, you know, being able to actually do all of that stuff for a living. I haven't really drawn any comic books. I've written a bunch of, you know, I've written scripts for a bunch of comic book stories. Um, I've drawn thumbnail sketches for a couple of of comic book projects I've worked on. I've... um, drawn like one-panel gag cartoons for, for a few magazines. I, used, I drew like a few one-panel gag cartoons for Nickelodeon magazine back in the day um, and, and for a few other magazines as well. Um, but really the writing part of my career has kind of taken over uh, from, from everything else. Um, but it's been a really fun while and I, I consider myself very lucky and very privileged and very grateful to, to be doing this for a living.
0: Awesome. And how did you get from Baltimore to New York, where you are now?
1: Um, well, I when I was a teenager, New York had like a very certain, a very specific kind of like mystique to me that like, it, it had this very specific kind of allure. Everything I liked was from New York, like Marvel Comics started in New York, and and they still are in New York. And DC Comics started in New York; they're in they're in Burbank now. Um, you know, Warner Brothers cartoons like Bugs Bunny. The you know the Warner Brothers were I th- I think they started out in New York. I, I believe um, Sesame Street, New York, Saturday Night Live, New York, The Daily Show in New York. Everything I liked. Uh, you know, Mad Magazine, and and as an adult, I would go on to have professional connections, relationships um, with, with a lot of these pop culture institutions as well. So it, I, I think, it turned out for the best. But, like, it just seemed like a lot of the stuff that I, that I really loved and was passionate about came from New York. A lot of the improv and sketch comedy world, the stand-up comedy world, all the, the greatest comedians that I really admired and looked up to as a kid. A lot of them were either from New York or in sort of the surrounding, the tri-state area. Um, and, and a lot of, a lot of playwrights and actors that, that I really, and filmmakers that I really admired as well. You know, Spike Lee, Martin Scorsese, you know, folks, folks like that, um, who have like a real definite voice to their work. Um, and I, and I know it might not seem like it. it's like, what does Martin Scorsese have to do with like writing like children's comics, you know, um, and things like that. But it's just, but well, watching a lot of these films where, not only does the filmmaker care a lot about the characters, but New York is itself one of the characters. Mm, yeah. That always struck me as really interesting. And that even that even is true in comics, too, because like, you know, obviously Gotham City in the Batman comics is based on New York. And obviously Metropolis in the Superman comics is based on New York. And if you know, that's for DC and the Marvel comics, they full-on call New York, New York. <laughs> and New York in the Marvel comics universe is a character as it is, as New York is in the MCU and the Marvel cinematic universe. Um, and do the right know, thing. What? And do the right thing. And do the right thing. Absolutely. <laughs> you get such a sense of a specific part of Brooklyn there and what it's like and what different like subcultures and communities are there. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, New York as a character is always something that that really appealed to me. But just living here, and just like the artistic, the the life the, the life that there can be in the city for an artist, and how this city inspires artists, was always something that that really appealed to me.
0: That's really interesting. I've never heard that story before, but I certainly myself, um, you know, from the East Coast, you know, have seen New York as a character in multiple fiction works.
1: It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and that's nothing against L.A. I have a lot of friends in L.A. And I sometimes before the before the, the pandemic, of course, went, went to L.A. for business or to do lectures and to give a lecture out there, or go speaking, go on a speaking gig. And I, I love Los Angeles, too. But, you know, um, New York, I think it's just a great city. And it's always inspired me a lot, like artistically, just just on a very, very deep gut level. So like when I was trying out for places to study screenwriting in college, um, like, you know, well, when I was in high school, when I was looking at colleges, a lot of them were in New York, and one of the ones on the top of the list was NYU, and that's where I studied playwriting and screenwriting.
0: Okay,
1: awesome. Uh, so you're telling me the Knicks
0: and the Nets didn't bring you to New York?
1: No, and what's funny about that is that not only did they not bring me to New York, and this is, this is going to sound terrible— I hope it doesn't sound terrible to you, but I also hope it doesn't sound terrible to any of your listeners who are sports fans. But I am so illiterate when it comes to sports that this this is a true story. I wrote, your listeners won't be able to see this, but you'll see it. But I wrote this Batman children's book called Harley at Bat. And the assignment was... Like, hey, Ari, do you want to write a Batman children's book? This is my editor, Penguin Random House, Dennis Shealy, saying this. He's like, do you want to write a, um, a Batman children's book where he's fighting Harley Quinn and the Joker and Harley Quinn's stealing a diamond and it's shaped like a baseball? You have to figure out why that's happening, how it's happening, what the plot is and everything. And But they're like a baseball stadium and, and they're, playing, they're playing baseball with, with the diamond. And I'm like, sure, of course. And I'd love to write a Harley Quinn story and Batman story. Those are two of my favorite uh, characters in all of pop culture. I love Harley; she's such a dynamic character. But I knew nothing about baseball <laughs> when I was when I got the job. So I immediately had to do all this research on baseball. I, I wrote like a blog post on my website about this a while ago. And you might think I'm exaggerating, but I like, I I played. Baseball as a kid, like I was on in little league because my dad kept signing me up for it against my wishes, very much against my wishes, and I remember very specifically being like eight or nine years old, and I'd be like stuck in the outfield somewhere because they weren't gonna they weren't gonna like waste they weren't gonna waste like any of the any of the important part you know I wasn't gonna get I was never gonna be like pitcher or anything um so. I just didn't have the skills and I didn't have the interest. And I remember specifically like standing somewhere in the outfield and seeing like a like a little ant mound next to me and all the little ants and being like, I wonder what if they weren't weren't ants? What if they were like aliens and this was like a tiny little <laughs> civilization? And I like immediately start like creating this story in my head, which was to me, and again, this is no offense to anyone who likes baseball, way more interesting. <laughs> than the baseball that was happening. Um so uh yeah and, and I think that's like a good that was like a good sign of things to come. But but I did manage to actually write the write the Harley at Bat book quite successfully I think because my editor was very happy with it and he likes baseball and he couldn't tell that I was baseball illiterate. <laughs> and that's a great job. It was it was a fun job. It was fun. It was so much fun writing this book. And because you were you had to keep to a very specific word count because it's a leveled reader. It's a reader for like kids of a certain um, level of reading. Um, you had to stick to a certain number of words per page. And so it was almost like writing poetry. So what I actually did was, I read a lot of poems about baseball to try and get inspired and try and get ideas. Obviously Casey at the Bat is the one that everyone knows but, but there were a few others as well which I talk about on that blog post but and that, and that start and reading that and reading the work of certain sports writers um like gave me a lot of respect for the sport I wish I was good at it <laughs> no, I am all. not I am not good at it um I have hand eye coordination like with drawing and writing but not with now with playing not with holding a bat or a ball in my hand We all have our strengths and don't worry exactly. about it Exactly we all yeah <laughs> But you know, but it gave me gave me a little respect, a real respect for for the um, for the sport and everything. So that was cool. That is. Before I ask
0: you about your time at NYU, I wanted to kind of aside. Have you ever heard of a Japanese manga called Hunter X Hunter? I don't know that. What what is that one about? That just came to my mind when you said your anthill analogy. Because I don't want to spoil it for anyone out there, but uh, it's pretty similar a pretty similar story to the one you described, and it's one of my
1: favorite of all time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it, it's weird because it's like whenever I, but I noticed that still happens though. That kind of like a, like daydreaming thing. <laughs> like I remember very specific, like I went to, there was um, Kyle Baker, who's a, who's a well-known graphic novelist. I had, I had my first book, Masters of the Comic Book Universe Real, my first nonfiction book um it's a book of like profiles of different comic book creators and there's a chapter on him and when i was working on the book he invited me to this like benefit game at met stadium um and every and it was me and him and my my wife nadine and like a bunch of our friends in the comics industry And i was just starting like write comics professionally at that time unless you count my work for mad magazine which some people count as a comic book some people just call it a magazine you know um but I, and I hadn't been to a ball game like as an adult until this point, and I was like, when is it? When is it going to get interesting? Like, what's the, <laughs> it's like a play where there's no plot, and the plot is extremely simple and takes like what feels like eight hours, and everyone's wearing these costumes, not unlike superheroes, but like, what's the plot? And I was like. I could, if you just give me a laptop, I could hammer out a plot for these guys. These <laughs> these these actors to perform would be very interesting. I could keep all the stuff where they're hitting the bat, the ball with a piece of wood. I would make that part of the plot. <laughs> but I could think of like, anyway, so I like found myself still as an adult, like going off on these like daydreaming, you know, like just start daydreaming about, about uh, like how to make, <laughs> what if, what if it was, what if it was a story? Right. So I, I could,
0: So many great things come from little daydreams like that. It's just the core of creativity right there.
1: Yeah. I mean, most writing is just what-if experiment, thought experiments, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like, what if that anthill was like a a tiny little alien civilization? Um, What if, what if this, what if, like the Marvel what-if series. That's why people enjoy that, and that's why people enjoy the comics that it's based on. Because it's like, it's all about the what-if of the situation. Yeah, that's
0: Really interesting parallel. Do you feel comfortable talking about your time at NYU at all? Of course. Yeah. Okay. What were your experiences there, you know, being in the script writing program, you said?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I was is um, playwriting and screenwriting and uh, a, little, a little studied a little bit of television writing as well, which was certainly helpful for when I when I graduated and started writing scripts for, for different TV shows. But um but I I found it like such an eye opener because when I went there, I was, okay, the playwriting and screenwriting, this might not be true anymore, but when I was there, playwriting and screenwriting were the same major. So you had to study both. And I knew nothing about playwriting. I was just going for screenwriting, you know, because I wanted to be like my heroes, like the screenwriters that that I really admired, you know? Um, And I noticed that some movies were more well-written than others. You wanted one of the the better screenwriters. So study screenwriting. But you had to study playwriting, too. And I was so uninterested in playwriting. But then we had to study all these actual plays. And once I started reading, you you start reading like August Wilson and Wendy Wasserstein and David Mamet. And it's like, I didn't – this is how naive I was, Jeremy. I didn't know – that some of those words you could say on a stage without, like, getting arrested. (laughs) Because, like, David Mamet, like, some of his plays were so filthy, like, the language... And then, I mean, you know, you see people like Quentin Tartino using very similar language anyway. Right. So, you, of course, you can do it. It's frowned upon by a lot of people in society, more polite society, but you can use that language. You just, a lot of people just choose not to. But I didn't know you could be that filthy in like a play. And that like opened my eyes. And I think what it also did was it made me like really respect how real a lot of the dialogue can be in playwriting. And like, my wife and I were watching like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom recently, like the movie version with, you know, just one of, unfortunately one of Chadwick Boseman's last performances. Mm-hmm. And it it dawned on me and my wife had never seen the play live, but I had, I had seen it a bunch of times because I was so into the play when I was at NYU. And so I had actually seen like a few different performances of it. And I realized how much of it I had, I had like, absorbed and how much of it how much of the dialogue i remember and it was so bizarre but it's because you don't see that world presented you don't see the world of like black blues musicians in the 1920s depicted Mm -hmm. period you know um you don't see it dramatized you don't see what they're doing when they're not making music the fact that they have lives they have love lives they have intellectual lives they have you know what i mean mm-hmm. you can't see like what their philosophies are as people um and that, and and playwrights like august wilson chase he wasn't the only one who was who was who was writing plays about this but you know he was certainly one of one of one of the people who's bringing this to the forefront in, in the theater world and it just gave me such it just changed my idea. Like studying people like August Wilson, David Mamet changed my ideas as to like what could be done in the theater. Because I thought of it as like this stodgy, like old fashioned yeah. art form beforehand. And after like immersing myself in 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 theater, like just for like a couple months, I was like, I want to write plays now. I want to like this is interesting. You know what I mean? And it, it became something I was passionate about. And I started using. And I started realizing also that like one type of writing can translate to another. And Mm. by that, I mean that like you can write a play and the play can give you ideas that you can then pour into a screenplay. And maybe some of the ideas and concepts and working methodologies that you've experimented with while writing screenplays, you can use some of those when you're writing a comic book script or a novel or a short story or like, so like a lot of these forms of literature, a lot of these forms of storytelling can inform one another, you know? And I started doing that. And I think that's what, when I was working, when I first started working professionally as a writer, I think that's what started to make my work stand out because when you lean into your personal obsessions, And you start showing, this is what I've been influenced by. This is what makes me stand out, what makes me different. That's what it did. It made me stand out.
0: It's really interesting. Yeah. You you, use the word filthy. Um, I definitely equate that to authentic when, you know, talking about
1: imparting your own wisdom into the the screenplay. That's really Mm -hmm. cool. And I I think, but I think that you're absolutely right, Jeremy, because it's like, that's what makes it, authentic is that people really do talk that way. (laughs) And usually when you write a script where people aren't talking that way, you're sort of like, you're sort of making it like nicer for a family audience, but like more money in the door, honest, what more money in the door. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. More money in the door. You can attract like the family audience and whatever. And that's fine. And I get that. And that's what I'm usually, that's what I usually have to do as well. But when we're just like clowning around with our friends, that's the way we we talk. Is we use we use those filthy words, (laughs) you know. And I like I'm a parent these days, so I can't use those filthy words when my daughter's (laughs) awake. But after she's asleep, my wife and I use those filthy words. So you know. man. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: before we get into uh, some of your creative works, I definitely wanted to ask you: Are there any more? Intellectual properties, meaning like books, video games, screenplays, or whatnot, that had a big influence on you uh, as you grew up.
1: oh, yeah, absolutely. Um let's see. Well, okay, Mad magazine did, and I eventually got to write for Mad magazine. I was one of their regular writers for a number of years. And when I say mad writer, I mean you're writing scripts for for Mad magazine for the the humor magazine. Um, and when I was a kid, I remember I had this very kind of fuzzy memory because, I don't remember. It was like, I guess it was, I guess these were friends of the family, like my parents' friends. And we were on vacation somewhere in some other city, some other state, I guess, not in Baltimore, I don't think. And my parents' friends and one of their kids was like showing me around their house. And he was like, and this is my comic book collection. And I looked at his comic book collection and I was like, I must've been like eight or nine or 10 years old. and I he had all these old mad magazines going back to like the fifties. Mm. And I was just, and it goes, showed you the history of it. And it like broke my brain open Um because there was this one, there was this one piece, like this one humor piece that Al Jaffe wrote and illustrated. And I would come to, now I know Al Jaffe personally, like as a friend, I like called him not long ago to see how he was doing, he's doing because he's a hundred years old mm. and he's one of the last surviving cartoonists from the golden age of comics and so uh and i've known him for a couple of decades now and but before i know when i first saw the, this piece that he had done for mad magazine it was the title was something like people who who know who are huge mad fans are probably going to hate that i don't get the title right but whatever i have other things on my mind i'm a parent these days um But it was something like, "What if kids design? What if children's toys were designed by actual kids?" Um, And it's, have you seen that, Jeremy? I haven't. But it's so brilliant because it's like, it's like, what if a doll was was designed by like a little girl? And it's like this like stick figure with like a scrawl for a mouth and like googly eyes and you know the way kids draw. Like nothing looks quite right. Everything looks kind of off kilter. And it looks like a children's child's drawing, but it's it's an actual doll. And so what Al Jaffe did when he made when he wrote and illustrated this was he actually built the props for it. Like so he built the doll and he built like a rocket that look, looks like a little kid's drawing of a rocket, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know? And it's great because it and and what it, what blew my mind about it when I was a little kid looking at this for the first time, and this is like something that Al Jaffe had done for Mad in like the 60s or 70s, but it had been reprinted so many times over the years because it's one of his classic pieces that he's done for Mad. But I just found this like, and that's like a what-if thing too, like what if kids design their right right. own terms. Um, but, but it was this perfect thing that I'd never seen anyone, this comedy area that I'd never seen anyone explore comedically before. Like, what if children design their own toys? And it was the thing that I always found funny about about kids, which is that when you're a child, nothing – and you're trying to draw things, nothing looks quite right, but you maybe don't realize it when you're a kid. You think, this is brilliant. I've done a brilliant job at this drawing. And then you look at it as an adult, and it's like, oh, this character has, like, two two left feet and, like, four fingers on each hand. There are no thumbs and, like – eyes look all googly and silly and you know what i mean but because you don't have a good sense of perspective or anatomy or anything when you're a kid and and so it was this thing that i realized was true as a child but like i had never seen anyone like comment on it comedically and the fact that someone was doing it just like it like blew my mind and (laughs) then there were things and that was that was also true of like of like of like Saturday Night Live, because they had just, when I was a kid, they just started rerunning like the old Saturday Night Live stuff mm. like from from the 70s. And so like, like doing like something like the Conehead sketches where, um, where, where it was like it's kind, of, kind of, but it was like this kind of like science fiction comedy, like making fun of old science fiction movies in this really bizarre way that I I thought was really great. And as a, as a result, a lot of the stuff that I've written as an adult is is sort of science fiction comedy in one way or another, like some of the, like the, the Lego star Wars humor books that I've written for Scholastic and things like that. But I, and I think it was inspired by that or like, this is going to sound really weird, but it's true. Like as a kid, Richard Pryor was a big influence. And I'll tell you why, because I found there was something so sympathetic about the characters that he played because he had these big eyes, like these big puppy dog eyes. And I just found it like so, like there's this movie that he was in called Some Kind, I think it's called Some Kind of Hero. And it's not even a very good movie, but it's like he's this Vietnam veteran and he comes back home and his like his wife leaves him and he Hmm. loses his job and like everything goes wrong. And so there's a certain point where he's like, He's like holding up like a convenience store with a toy gun, like a toy water pistol. (laughs) And it's, it's but it's a drama. It's got some comedy in it, but it's a drama. And I I remember seeing it as a kid and I was just, I almost started crying because it was like the most pathetic thing I had ever seen. Like he's trying to hold up this convenience store with a water gun. And it was like the saddest thing. and And the cashier just starts laughing at it. And I was just like, it just devastated me. And I was, I had never realized that you could merge comedy and tragedy like that. You know another what I mean? D- another dimension. Yeah. That's a really cool one. It was, it was like, it took everything to like a whole other level, you know? Um, and so I just, like, when we got, I, I started like looking for his comedy specials on television, and I was not supposed to watch his comedy specials on television. <laughs> But there were no parental controls in those days, so there was nothing stopping me from watching his comedy specials on television. Oh, <laughs> and then I realized that Eddie Murphy also had comedy oh, specials wow. on television, and <laughs> and and my friends knew about it. I should I should find out what those were, you know. And 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 you were not supposed to. You were not supposed to watch those if you were a little kid. There but, are
0: definitely uh, some parallels there between you know the Mad Magazine and Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor, I can see them certainly in the, yeah. the way it's delivered and the, the the fully like fleshing out of everything.
1: Well, it's, it's the whole, I think what all of those things have in common is the idea that there's no sacred cows. Nothing is off limits comedically. Mm-hmm. You can explore any area comedically. Nothing is off limits. No comedy area is intrinsically like off limits. Nothing is in poor taste. And that's also like like a lot of my comedic heroes as a kid, like, you know, like I was saying earlier, like like Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor, but also like Mel Brooks. Um, you know, like Mel Brooks would make fun of, like he would, you know, some people say it's in poor taste that that he was he was making fun of the Nazis and making fun of the Holocaust um in some of his movies. Well, okay, fine, but he's not making fun of the Holocaust victims or the Holocaust survivors. He's making fun of the Nazis. He's not like punching down, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So as long as you're not like victim blaming, you know, um, when he's making fun of racism and blazing saddles, he's making fun of the clan and he's making fun of racists and he's making fun, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's making fun of like white people in the old West, um, who were racist and white people today who are racist, you know? And, he's not making fun of Sheriff Bart. He's not making fun of the black people in the movie. You know, he's not blaming the victims because then where's the joke? What's the joke there? Right. Tastes Um, tasteful. Yeah. I I mean, a racist person would think there's a joke there, but it's like, (laughs) but it's not, you are not like those characters have had it bad enough. You don't, you're not making fun of them. Isn't going to do anything comedically. And it's just making, it's just going to be a racist thing to do. You know, it's just like, there's nothing. You know what I mean? What is, yeah. what is even the point there comedically? Um, so I think that's what all those all those things kind of had in common. They they kind of like taught me that there's a whole other level and a whole other dimension to comedy.
0: That's really cool, man. Um, thanks definitely for sharing that because it is really interesting to hear. Every individual creative has their own individual story for what inspired them.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and it's like. It's just it it drove me to, especially starting in my teen years, to just look for like who was making this stuff? Like who was oh, okay. Mm. So Richard Pryor was one of the writers on Blazing Saddles, and he and Mel Brooks were friends at the time, and he was mm. supposed to star in Blazing Saddles originally, but the studio thought he was too much of a loose cannon and too much of an insurance risk, you know, and, <laughs> and so which It turned out (laughs) kind kind of justified. (laughs) They were kind of justified in thinking that. Why would they Um, think
0: that?
1: Exactly. And you know, um, and and so I realized there's a whole narrative here behind the scenes. You know what I mean? There's the story of the movie, but there's also the story behind the scenes of the movie. But it drove me to like keep searching for like who was making this comedy content that I really responded to. Who was creating this stuff? Mm. You know.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: It 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 like with Saturday Night Live, I learned that the first head writer of the show was a guy named Michael O'Donohue, and I became obsessed with Michael O'Donohue. Mm-hmm. And he was just like this very he had this very dark sense of humor. And he was very he wrote like the Star Trek sketch um in the early years of SNL where John Belushi is Captain Kirk and they're like and NBC is like dismantling the set of Star Trek as as Captain Kirk is going on his final mission and, and everything. And it's like this classic SNL sketch. Um, and, you know, and I, I like tried to find like who was creating this comedy, who was okay. And Michael O'Donohue just writes for something called National Lampoon. What's that And all? Oh, National wow. Lampoon's still around, except now it's like, it's like, it's, it's not really a magazine. It's just a website. And you know what I mean? Like, and all, all that stuff. And so yeah. it, it, drove me to like find out who was, who was creating this stuff.
0: That core curiosity, I absolutely understand that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you about some of your work that you're creating now. Um, you're working on a mobile game? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, for, for quite a long time now, I've been writing the scripts uh, for this mobile game called EQ, the Next Generation Lodestar, uh, which is a top-to-bottom next-gen relaunch of an existing game, which is also called EQ, and the company, the game company PsychAps, bills it as an emotional fitness game. And what that means is that it's a game that teaches psychological skills to people play to the players. Um, it teaches uh, you to in- it teaches the player to increase their resilience and lower their anxiety. And you know, it's been it's been uh, beta tested and play tested a, n- a number of times before it was launched. And you know, it, it really does give results and uh, to the player and so that there's there's a lot of hard data uh, to to prove that. Um, what I've been doing is I've been writing these scripts um, in the this- script. In the world of the game, you are you are a newly minted world, load. I'm sorry, you are a newly minted load star. I was about to say world star, which <laughs> is something completely different. <laughs> but, um, you know,
0: if there was a video game where you could, the goal was to be a world star. Wow!
1: <laughs> and then you just turn to the camera and you go world star at the end. Um, but uh, no, you become a load star, which is like a secret order of time jumpers. Um, and uh, you go on a, on a different mission. You go on all these different missions. Each mission is to a different historical era. Mm. The, and each mission is a different story set in a different historical era. So like on the first, the first story is called the House of Krondalar, And it's several levels. Each one is like eight to 10 levels long, mm. each story. And House of Krondalar, you find yourself married to Krondalar, who's the leader of uh, the troll kingdom of Trollopolis. And you, the player, are the monarch of the human kingdom Fusiladia, and you're at war with Trolopolis, and the two kingdoms have been at war for a century. As you play the game, you find out why they're at war in the first place. That's like buried deep within the game. Um, but because you're now you're, you form an alliance with Trolopolis, but the terms of the alliance are that you have to be married to. Krandalar. and Cronalar <laughs> can be a male, female, or non-binary uh, person, depending on the um, the gender of the of the player. Um, and uh, you have to stay married to Crondolar and you have to learn about troll culture. And um, you your relationship fuels the game. The relationship between you and Cronalar, and, and it's very inspired by you know Lord of the Rings and, and Game of Thrones. And, um there but there are a lot of pop culture references from everything to like from Harry Potter to Star Wars to Hamilton um, because because at various points you know you're a time traveler but you're not telling anyone that you're a time traveler but at various points during the dialogue uh, you're you're you almost slip up and like betray the fact that you're a time traveler from the future. Um, so that's like one of the running gags where um, okay. Celia Lipfin, who's the the CEO of Psychaps the game company she saw I like put like a gag in there in one of the first scripts where you almost slip up and give away the fact that you're time travel and she's like you got to you got to have one of these in every level <laughs> Um, this is great. You gotta put like something like this in it. So I did I did and I put like there's like one point in every level where you almost give it away and you all you come very close, like frighteningly close to like giving up the fact that you're a time traveler. Cause you like mention some form of like modern day technology or some pop culture institution from like the twenty-first century or something like that. Um so, you know. Uh so it's it's been a lot of fun working on that game and um layering it as much as possible with all the gags and easter eggs. Like story 2 is um a story where you're in Elizabethan England and you play and you are the best friend of a young aspiring playwright named William Shakespeare um and you've got to stop him from getting murdered in a pub brawl or getting put in jail or 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 any of the other ho- other terrible things that he's at risk of, of getting himself involved in um, you got to stop him from doing all this stuff so that he can grow up and become like big famous William Shakespeare. Um, and there's, there's a ton of Easter eggs. There's characters named after characters from Shakespeare's plays. Um, and you know, it's, it's, I had a lot of fun writing that story. It did a lot of historical research, which it's a slapstick comedy. You know, like all the other stories in EQ, you wouldn't think that it's that research intensive, but you know, I had to do a lot of research. Like you're, you get thrown in jail in one of the levels alongside William Shakespeare. Spoiler alert. You guys get to spend the night in jail. <laughs> um, but yeah. but to, have, to have them be arrested, I had to do research. Like what were, what was a police force like in, in Elizabethan England? Was mm-hmm. there any such thing? What did a jail look like? Cause then you have to do all this research. You have to send all the, um, the, the like links to all this research. I sent it to the head to Celia so Litvin, the head of the game company, and Cecilia Rodriguez, the lead artist, who's amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, so that they they know what, what it's supposed to look like, what the art assets are going to look like and everything. And you want to do right by this, even though it's a comedy, you want to be as accurate as you can be within the realm of, like, slapstick comedy. Yeah, that's really incredible. I can't
0: wait to check that out. What platform is it going to be available on?
1: It is so... Interesting that you should ask me that because it's not as though I have it written down here. And, uh, <laughs> it's on Google play. You can play uh, EQ. The next iteration is available to play on Google play and iOS uh, app store and the iOS app store. Um, and I def- definitely was not reading that off a piece of paper. I definitely <laughs> have that
0: memorized. It's and, fine if you were, man. There's uh, no way I didn't remember that.
1: Um, but I'm really proud of it, and I've been having a lot of fun uh, working on it. It's like a labor of love, and it's it's great. I'm having a great time working with everyone.
0: It sounds like a different mobile experience and a really immersive one. So I'm I'm genuinely excited about that. I'm going to check that out.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I've been working to make it like as immersive as possible, and like and that as you get further into each story, you find out more about the backstories for all the different characters, and you know, and and like again, like with with the first story, because it takes place in a fantasy kingdom, guess what? You have to do world building. So there's world building for the frame story where you're this Lodestar, where you're a star, and you get, you get a special suit that you get to wear because all the stars have costumes that they, uh, like uniforms that they wear. stars, if I had to describe them, they're sort of like a cross between the Jedi order and the Green Lantern Corps. Hmm. Um, and they're devoted to like, they're the they're secret order of heroes that, time-jumping heroes that are, like, devoted to, like, you know, um, emotional and, and psychological growth. And mm-hmm. so it um, def- definitely fits, like, the theme of the game. But so there's there's world-building and lore that's connected to the lodestars that you learn about as you're playing the game. But then as you're going into each of these different time periods, you're also learning about the world-building in these different historical eras too. So, like, what's the deal with the troll-human war and, and all that stuff?
0: Interesting, man, yeah, that is really cool. I'm excited to hear you are so excited about it, which makes me want to go check it out even more.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, and it's and it's and the other thing about it is too, like I there's trolls, and so I had to make them like, I don't want to say sexy trolls, but um <laughs> you're married to a troll, no matter what the troll's gender is, no matter what Kondolar's gender is, I thought Kondolar should be physically appealing. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you want to be attracted to your spouse. How many people have had that problem, man? I complex. mean, <laughs> but to do that, I but to do that, I had to be very specific when I was describing what the trolls look like. Because I was like, okay, they have. I think Celia Rodriguez, is the lead artist, I think it was her idea to give them horns. But I definitely, I wanted them to be like green, and I think Celia like like mixed it up a bit. So some of them are green, some of them are purple. But um, you, ah. Uh, Aside from the fact that they have horns and they have some of them have fangs and they have like little splotches on their body, they're pretty attractive. Um, so, like, and I kind of based some of their culture on like the Klingon culture from Star Trek mm-hmm. a little bit, um, and like the way their armor looks and stuff like that. Because I like found it it's, it's so much fun developing like a lot of this world building and lore and everything. If I think that's. Oh, sorry. What? No, no, no I'm sorry. You go ahead. No, I think that's what a lot of gamers get a kick out of that anyway. And that's like a big part of game, of playing a video game. And so I, I wanted that to be fun for the player, too. So
0: I know you're working on a project that's pretty special to you, uh, the graphic novel, Frankie and the Dragon. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, how, how, you, how that's coming along um, with the, the development process.
1: Yeah, uh, Frankie and the Dragon came out earlier this year. Oh, I, I'm so used to doing this. I was just, for those of you listening which is everyone, because this isn't a video <laughs> podcast. You don't know, but I just did the stupid thing of holding up a copy of Frankie <laughs> and the Dragon as though all of you listening could see it. With your ears? I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah. So Frankie and the Dragon is a book that I'm very proud of. It's a graphic novel. It's one of the most personal works that I've ever created in my career as a writer. And... um it is a book that's very special to me because the main character in Frankie and the Dragon is a little girl named Frankie Marble, and she's very closely based on my daughter, Avia Kaplan. And um, like Frankie, Avia is black and she is nerdy and she has glasses and she's very introverted and shy and she's really artistically inclined and loves to draw. Um, so I put all all those, all those are. are, are Elements of, of the Frankie Marvel character and they're also words that could describe my daughter. Um, and I wanted to do a book. I, I want I thought it would be silly not to if I was creating an original graphic novel and it it had to have a kid protagonist, because I should explain, Jeremy, that that um this book is part of um a six book series called the uh the mythical creatures series that capstone put out, capstone, the, the children's book and children's graphic novel company. Um mm. uh, and I wrote three of the Mythical Creatures titles, and another author wrote the other three. Hmm. And um, the three that I wrote were called Trevor the Very Best Giant, The Troll Under Puzzle, Puzzle Bridge, and Frankie and the Dragon. So each book had to deal with a, a, a different uh, monster, um, and each book had to have a kid protagonist. And so I thought, for Frankie and the Dragon, I should make the the kid protagonist, based based on my my child, my daughter. And each book has something about it that that's somewhat autobiographical and somewhat personal. But this one, I thought, is the most uh, personal. And it was one of those things. And I was um, when I was developing the script for it, when I was writing the script, I showed it to to Avia. I showed it to my daughter, and um, she was able to read it before anyone else. Cause, so she was very excited about that, mm, and awesome. she was. Yeah, thanks. So that was really cool, and and she was telling me about like what her favorite lines, the dialogue were, what her favorite scenes were, and then when the concept drawings for the characters came in, I showed those to her, and that was really exciting because she could put a face to a name, and you know she could be like, oh, this is this is uh, this this is Frankie. You know, now I can see her. Now she has now she's like a well, flesh and blood person. Mm. You know what I mean? Brought her to uh, life. It was so cool. And it's one of those things where I like heard I've heard a uh, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer writer, I think it was Jane Espenson talking about this years ago. And then it's like being a writer um, in television, and I've had this experience too, that it's sort of like the children's book, Harold and the Purple Crayon, where you like you draw, you write into a script like Um, exterior pier day there's a submarine you know we we see a submarine um floating next to the pier or whatever and then you go to the set like the uh, you know a few weeks later and they're building a submarine (laughs) because they're building the thing that you draw the thing that you wrote about is now being made flesh is now you know being turned into something real and it's it's that's it's a very similar experience you're like you know i created this or co-created this character with the artist caesar samaneco and um now now it's being turned into something now it's real now it's being Mm. realized it's now this is really happening and then when they sent us the artwork for it and the, the rough thumbnail sketches and then the finished art um I showed Avia all of that, and she was really excited. Like, every step of the process, it's getting more and more real, you know? And this was also something fun that we could look at together and take our mind off the pandemic, because I was writing this in the early days of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was being drawn at that time, too. And, like, it was really something nice for me and my wife, Nadine, and, and my daughter to, able, like, to um to look at. And, you know, and I, I could say that the character... Is, is also somewhat inspired by my wife, who is also is also Black and is also very nerdy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a very nerdy family. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not, you know, it's, it's based on, Frankie Marble is based on my daughter, but she's not unlike my wife in a <laughs> lot of ways, too. Um, you know? And it's all about this little girl, like, sort of, like, learning to be more bold and more brave and more self-confident and the dragon teaching the dragon bandit teaching her how to do that um and so it has a very clear through line very clear arc for the character um and you know i could i could tell stories with these characters all day it was a a lot of fun
0: that's a unique experience um ari to be able to write something like that Uh, i actually can't wait to check that out where is that available
1: it is available. You can get it on, on the Capstone website and you can get it on um, Amazon.com also. On, and Barnes Noble um, has it too, I believe. Um, it's called Frankie and the Dragon. The others are called uh, Trevor the Very Best Giant and Troll Under Puzzle Footbridge. Troll Under Puzzle Footbridge takes place in a town called Lyric Acres, which is very, very uh, much inspired by my hometown of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And like, like Baltimore... Uh Lyric Acres is a an ordinary seeming town where something is deeply deeply wrong. Uh no it's I it's I don't know if I go so far as to say that but it is the sort of town that looks sort of like Tim Burton or Charles Adams would have designed. Oh wow. It, I love them. Which Burton. was very it was very much part of the plan on on my part um where I wrote that into the script that like it was supposed to look like like something out of a Tim Burton movie. And again, I wish this, if this was a video podcast, I'd be able to show it to everybody, but Alex Lopez, the artist, just just nailed it. Um, but I hear Jeremy, you'll be able to see it anyway. <laughs> well, also look, within our profile,
0: after this, the interview, we'll have some links to your works in there too. So I'll make sure to include that.
1: Yeah, but the Troll Under Puzzle Footbridge, I specifically put it in the panel descriptions and in the stage directions of the script that the characters should look like uh, characters in a Tim Burton movie. Hmm. Um, and I th- that was a really fun thing to do because um, it gave it a very specific look, you know? And I wanted some of the characters to look sort of like 1920s or 1930s characters, like sort of characters out of a silent movie, because that felt like, that's sometimes the way Tim Burton movies feel to me as well. Like they look very retro, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Everyone has these, like, these, like, there were these outfits that look like something out of the past. Yes. Uh, so I, I wanted to make that, like, make the book have, like, a very specific look. But, like, like Baltimore, when I was growing up, had this historic section Um, that there's a lot of ghost stories about it. Um, There's all these haunt, supposedly haunted place. Yes, I don't believe in ghosts. <laughs> come on, ghosts. You can come to me, ghosts. I don't care. I'm not afraid of you. Any ghosts listening to this? Uh, but uh, but Baltimore at the time had, like, and I think that this is still true from what I understand, that there's a lot of, there's like tours of like ghost Baltimore, like, because they're all, they're, all, they're all these supposedly historic, uh, not supposedly historic, they are historic, but supposedly haunted uh, locations in Baltimore, like houses and, and things like that, supposedly ghosts living there that have unfinished business. And um so I I thought I thought I'd give that kind of creepy vibe to this to to the troll under puzzle foot bridge. And also it's a very different troll, type of troll than in um than in EQ the next generation. Um because you know I wanted these these trolls that you see in the troll under puzzle foot bridge are very much like the kinds of trolls that you see in Norse mythology and things like that. Like they have these long stringy hair and Um, these big bulbous noses. They're very much what I did not want the trolls in um, in EQ to look like because the trolls in EQ... You have to marry one of them. (laughs) The opposite. Wow. You want to be attracted to the person you're spending the rest of your life with, Uh, even if it's a political marriage.
0: How Um, many? How many people have the um, option of designing an ugly troll and a
1: sexy troll in their lifetime? (laughs) Yeah, two different fictional universes for two different fictional universes. Exactly. But it makes it it makes you think about the world building involved in all this stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, and like what you're, and it also makes you think about like a lot of the projects that I work on have some kind of tie to folklore and mythology because that's a yes. big obsession of mine. Um, so it makes you think about why is it that like a lot of cultures on this planet have some version of troll or something like a troll or a goblin or an orc in their in their folklore? Why is it? You know, I, I saw Shang Chi recently, and there's a dragon in Shang Chi. Well. Like, How many different cultures on this planet have a version of a dragon or or a vampire? There's like a vampire myth in almost every culture on Earth. You know, you've
0: done a great job so far of you know adding authenticity authenticity to your creative works, and I can see where it comes from now. It comes from your life. Like you're imparting, you're interpreting life into these works, and it's really cool to, to finally you know have you kind of elaborate on that.
1: Thanks. Well it's, it's something I'm passionate about and I hope that I hope that comes through. And you know, and it's part of what look, um I I became a writer because I wanted to tell stories and I felt a burning desire to tell stories. And I I'm one of those people who are like, Oh, how am I gonna finish this script? I don't have any ideas for it. Well well, I got this one idea, and then I write <laughs> and I'm like, Okay, okay, all right, fine. I do have a second idea. And then like by the end of an hour I've like got the whole thing outlined and I'm like, okay, I guess I guess I was wrong. I guess I do have a few ideas for this this script, it turns out. So it's like, but it's one of those things where it's like, it has to be, I have to make it interesting. It Mm -hmm. has to be, you know what I mean? It has to be something that I feel some kind of personal attachment to. So,
0: widening our lens, zooming out, looking past the pandemic, hopefully, where, where do you see yourself, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road? What do you want your legacy to be as far as a writer um that's is that something you, is that, it's not something you, it's not something every writer thinks about so you don't have to think about it that way but uh could you speak to that
1: yeah absolutely um you know i've written for a, a bunch of different tv shows i uh, pbs kids show cyber chase and coding kids next door on cartoon network and i was a staff writer a number of years ago on a show called true tv presents world's dumbest which was on. True TV, <laughs> um, as you might as you might have guessed from the title. Um, I'd, lo- I'd love to create my own show at some point. Um, I have ideas for animated TV shows that, uh, and and I have a- ideas for live action shows. I'd love to create my own show. I'd love to be a head writer of a show. I was a lead writer for a video game company a few years ago as a lead writer on the Vanderpump on season one of the Vanderpump Rules video game <laughs> um, for Endless Entertainment. Yes, it exists. <laughs> I'm um, about to look that up. <laughs> yeah. But um and and you know, in video games the lead writer is is very similar to what a head writer is on television. And you know, you, you edit the scripts and you supervise the writing process and you manage a team of writers and you, you sketch out the season-long arc. If it's an episodic game, which this was. Uh, a lot of the games I have worked on have been based on TV shows or, or licensed properties from other media and um, a lot of the video games I've worked on have been um, episodic in nature um so that that's always that's always fun and it's it's a fun challenge of like adapting things from one medium to the next but um but excuse me I found that when i when I was lead writer for for that game um, I really took to the job of being lead writer and decision making and supervisory aspect and also like you know just sketching out like the season arc and the story ideas for each episode and everything and coming up with new oh no bravo doesn't like uh, any of the story ideas okay i guess i'll have to come up with 12 new ones like you know <laughs> however many episodes I that's
0: not frustrating
1: of course it's frustrating <laughs> <laughs> but it is a challenge and you realize it comes with the territory and i can't fault them if they don't like the yeah. ideas that's their prerogative they're the ones who are funding this thing you know what i mean um you know it's it's like it's i'm always quoting this but uh there's this line in godfather part 2 this is the life we've chosen <laughs> you know that one of the old gangsters says to michael corleone <laughs> and so appropriate I, it is um, I'm not saying that show business or publishing, or video game industry are like the mafia, uh, but I am saying that that this is the life I've chosen. You know, no one put a gun to my head, and I was like, I'm gonna, "You're going to write some comic books, if, or your brains are going to be splattered on this comic book page." Um, no one said that to me. Uh, you know, I chose to do this, so I chose also to then accept all the challenges involved. Um, and yeah, it's, it is frustrating when, uh, like, you know, when someone's like, oh no, you you got to start from scratch and come up with completely new story ideas. But then also you're like, okay, I'll, I'll look at this in a positive, optimistic way as a creative challenge. Fine. You know, I'll come up with completely new ones. Let's see how that goes. And it, and honestly, sometimes those end up being even better. Mm. So, you know, I, I just like you have to look at it in a positive way, you know?
0: Yeah. All right. This has been incredible. We have so much more to unpack. Will you come back
1: uh, and do another interview with us? No, I hated <laughs> this very much. This was terrible. I'm As you can tell, that. I am very <laughs> reluctant to speak about myself or my work. Of course, of course. I would. I would thank you, Jeremy. It's, it's been a pleasure for me too. I would I'd love to come back.
0: Yes, this will be my priority to bring you back because we have so much more work to unpack what you've done already and uh, so many more things to direct fans to. But so right now, where would you want your fans to be? Where do you want to tell people to go?
1: Um, okay. Well, my website is AriKaplan.com. My parents were very unique, let's just say, when they were naming me, <laughs> because most uh, most aries are A-R-I. There are a few others like me where it's A-R-I-E. So I'm not the only one I found. Um, talking about myself like I'm like the last Kryptonian or something. There are, there are more of us. <laughs> I found out that the, I'm not the last survivor of the dead planet. Um, but it's so that for the my point, that <laughs> very long-winded way of dis, uh, uh, describing this, um, my point is that uh, it's A-R-I-E-K-A-P-L-A-N.com. So that, that's it. Uh, the website's AriKaplan.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at Ari Kaplan. Um, and again, A R I E K A P L N. The E is silent, I guess. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I have an Amazon author page and on uh, on Amazon too, where you can see a lot of the books that that I've written. And I'm, I'm sure I'll give you the link so you can you can link to that in the description as well, if you like, if it's okay, Jeremy.
0: Absolutely, yeah. it absolutely will be.
1: And, um, yeah, I've got a lot of projects I'm working on right now. Batman, a second Batman children's book called uh, Swamp by Croc, where uh, Batman fights Croc. Not Killer Croc. It is Killer Croc, but we can't call him Killer Croc because it's a book for very young children. You can't.
0: So,
1: yeah, it's like how it's like how a DC in dc superhero girls they call killer frost they just call her frost (laughs) um because yeah which makes sense it's like how are you going to justify using the word killer in 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 a a story for little kids you know um and swamp by croc comes out in january um and uh it's it's really great it's got this this amazing painted cover that looks gorgeous and it was a lot of fun to write and um Yeah, got a lot of other other new stuff on the way. Happy to stop by again some other time and tell you all about it.
0: Absolutely, we'll have to. Um, Can't wait to hear about that and and again to dive into um, some of the incredible work you've done over the years.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Ari. And uh, thanks to all those listening and watching wherever you are. Be sure to visit storystorm.co slash storymakers to listen to the full transcript of this interview and to see what else Ari's working on. Also, stay locked in our social media feeds for more from the Storymaker series, free digital art, paid contests, storytelling resources, and more. And so, all right, it's becoming kind of a tradition, but I was wondering if you could follow me along where no huh? other guest has. <laughs> I'm just going to count to three. We're just going to give a piece, if that's okay. Give a what? A piece. We're going to just... say
1: peace. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, all right, sure. All right. I was like a piece. I was like literally, this shows how hungry I am. I was like a piece of pie. <laughs>
0: <Not> <laughs> was like yet. a
1: piece of didn't, pie. Didn't definitely, though.
0: But let's go. <laughs> Peace.